The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Hi, gang. This is Mike Wise. I'm off the grid this week, but I am giving Bruce Bernstein my microphone, and he promises to give it back. The Mike Wise Show is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. The Mike Wise Show is hosted by a guy who played basketball atrociously for Hawaii Pacific College, which forced him into journalism. And, oh yeah, he wrote about basketball for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and ESPN. He's also a wise-ass, and so are many of his guests. Right, Mike? Thank you, Darlene, and welcome to the Mike Wise Show. As you heard at the top, Mike is on vacation with his family this week. I'm Bruce Bernstein of Pure Hoops Media, filling in for Mike. In 1979, two guys with the last name of Bird completed distinguished college basketball careers. One became a Celtics legend, and the other one was actually drafted by the Celtics, and he's our guest this week. So who is this mystery man? Well, he's Alton Bird, the Vice President of Business Operations for the Long Island Nets of the G League. After moving east from his native San Francisco to play college hoop at Columbia University, his basketball journey has taken him across the country, across the pond to the UK, and back to Long Island. Along the way, he's worked for the former ownership group of the Sacramento Kings, the WNBA's Atlanta Dream, his current position with the Nets, and his first management gig, which we're going to start with in a moment. But first, uh, Alton, welcome to the Mike Wise Show. How's uh, everything down in Long Island today? We're doing fine, thank you. We we just uh, avoided, you know, a, a bunch of damage with Isais, but uh, we're recovering and all is well. Thank you for asking, and it's a pleasure to be here. Well, thanks, Alton. Connecticut is uh, is an absolute mess, but we're glad that we had enough technology available to uh, figure out a way to get together today. So, so thanks again for being here. I'd like to start with your story because I think it's really, really unique. And I'd like to rewind, if we could, to your senior year at Columbia. You were the winner of the Francis Pomeroy Naismith Award, which is no longer presented, but at the time went to the top college player six feet tall and under. Other winners of that award have been Tim Hardaway Sr., Nate Robinson, Muggsy Bogues, and Jameer Nelson. You were a three-time All-Ivy League selection when the Ivy was still able to produce teams that made the Final Four. So you were obviously a baller, and you played pro for a while. Can you tell us a little bit about your professional career? Yeah, it's an interesting journey. Um, You know, I was blessed to play at Columbia. Uh, I had Tom Penders as a coach for two years, and I had Buddy Marr both of whom kind of grew me well and uh, taught me well and instructed me well and guided me well. And I played in the Ivy League during a time where where the coaches were Hall of Fame class. Chuck Daly coached at Penn while I was at Columbia. Um, Pete Carrill coached at at Princeton while I was at Columbia. But um, once I graduated, you know, in, in April, I should say March or April of my senior year, I got a phone call from a gentleman named David Dubow, who was the founder and CEO of a company called IMS International, Intercontinental Medical Statistics International. They had offices in, you know, 33 countries and and they had businesses around the globe. Um, And unbeknownst to me, he was a Columbia business alum, but he had been coming to Columbia basketball games uh, during my four years there, or certainly three years of playing varsity. And he was looking to start a mid-level management program um, and asked me if I would be interested in, A, coming to work at IMS, and B, playing basketball um, during my time in the UK. So I graduated in May, um, and I went to visit the UK in May, uh, and, you know, basically said, I'm interested, but I really want to chase my NBA dream. Um, and he said, okay, I hope you don't make it. But if you don't make it, if you do make it, fantastic. If you don't make it, I'd love for you to come to the UK. Um, fast forward three months, I went to rookie camp at the Celtics with Larry Bird, as you mentioned. Um, 
I didn't make it um, due to injury and the fact that, you know, the Celtics were literally in the midst of a rebound. Um, and then upon getting cut and uh, just making a decision about what to do, I decided to go to Europe to play, well, to work for IMS as their first um, mid-level management trainee. Um, and, you know, quite honestly, I got there. I was really the first point guard of my type, you know, past first point guard of my type uh, in the UK uh, and some say in Europe. And, you know, I played my first year there. It was a rousing success. I really enjoyed it. And that turned one year into basically an 18-year career where I had a chance to play all over the world for different club teams and, and had a wonderful career. So at the age of 25, you're named the general manager of the Murray International Medals Sports Organization in Edinburgh, Scotland, the first African-American GM of a British sports organization. So how did you get from your initial journey where you were playing some to that particular position? Well, the owner of Murray International was David Murray, um, and I had a former teammate who had moved from Crystal Palace, the team that I started with, to Edinburgh to play for David Murray. And David Murray had a commitment. He wanted to have the best um, basketball team in, in Britain, and he also wanted to have a team that uh, competed in Europe. So uh, upon the end of my contract in 1982, he – you know, basically offered me a job, which was a little bit unique. I, he wanted me to come really upgrade the team, get better Americans, you know, become one of the two Americans, but really kind of drive the goal to being the best team in Britain. So he ended up saying, I want you to do it all. I want you to find the players. I want you to help us build a business around this team. Um, he allowed me to really start a club team from scratch. So we had a junior setup with junior players. We had a women's team. Um, and I ended up being GM, uh, which is a little bit unusual. So I was player, coach, and GM. Um, I hired a, a, an assistant coach basically to run the games during, during the league season. And um, that's how it turned out. He wanted somebody who had a sense of how to build something. And, and, you know, luckily he chose me. Sounds like you were into multitasking before we started actually calling it multitasking. So you're the general manager, you're a player, and you said you were also the head coach. So really you were a player who was the boss of, of everything, including yourself, I guess. I mean, how, how did you balance all of that? Well, it, it was, um, it was a little bit daunting at first, but, you know, I, I had always said to myself, I know that Alton Bird, the player, can make Alton Bird, the coach, uh, better. And, and as you know, basketball is really about the players. Um, the coaches become more managers than they do, you know, strategists. If you have great players, you will have, for the most part, a good team, great team. So uh, that whole player coach GM thing lasted a year. Uh, we won, you know, the national championship. We were competitive in Britain. I think we were, you know, either number one or number two in the United Kingdom. That included English teams, Irish teams, and Welsh teams. Um, but that lasted a year. And then the next year, we we actually hired a coach. Um, and then, really, I let the coach run the basketball side, and then I focused on the business side while I was – also playing. So when you were getting started in this position and moving over into management, you mentioned some of the great coaches that you had been exposed to uh, either as an opponent or playing for back in the Ivy. So was there anything, was there one particular thing you could point to in your basketball journey that was particularly valuable in preparing you for this multifaceted role? Yeah. I, I, I like to think, you know, that all of the things that I have done, but in, in specifically, I think your ability to manage relationships um, was the one thing. You know, I've watched coaches manage player-coach relationships. I've watched coaches manage coach-coach relationships. 
Then I've watched owners manage, you know, relationships. And I was very lucky. You know, when I first got to London, we had a general manager. His name was Terry Doherty, and he was wonderful at managing relationships and fighting for his players and his coaches. So I watched Terry, then I watched David Murray. Um, you know, we we had I played a year at Manchester United, and I got a chance to see the infrastructure there and how Sir Alex Ferguson managed his football players. So I think when you add all of that up, Bruce, you you see people. And the key part about all of this is how they connect with players, coaches, and owners, and how that runs through the organization. I've been through some very, I've been a part of some very successful organizations, and then I've been part of some that weren't as successful. And and really, it was, came down to two things: communication and relationships. So, in that first job, uh, you're dealing with major sponsors and you were able to secure sponsorships with companies like Nike and Renault for the organization. And so you're a 20 something really, and you're from North America and you're from Africa and you're African American. So was it a struggle to be taken seriously by some of the older members of the business community in Europe who might've seen you as more of an athlete and not a serious deal maker or executive? No, I, you know, we were, look, I, I think I was surrounded by really good people that helped open doors. Certainly our ownership always helped. Like in Scotland, David Murray would open doors, sometimes go on meetings. Um, we had a CFO, Jim McDonald, that would go on meetings. It helps to have that support. Um, but I think most people took me at face value. They'd seen me on television. They'd seen me play. They knew that, you know, I was atypical because I was working and I was quite frankly preparing for the alternative that what happens if I can't play anymore. And so fundamentally, you know, I was preparing for life after basketball while I was playing basketball and it worked out. And I think people did take me seriously. And at the end of the day, as I said, I, I, I could drive uh, the opportunity because I was playing um, and because I saw lots and lots of unique opportunities to create partnerships and relationships with our sponsors. And it really did work out. I was very lucky. You had uh, truly earned your way up the ladder by not taking any shortcuts along the way. I'm sure thinking out of the box and always kind of having your head on a swivel looking for, for opportunities. So you've been a player, you've been a coach, an entrepreneur, a business executive, you're also the chief revenue officer for the WNBA Atlanta Dream. And now you're in charge of business operations for a G League team in a large metro area with lots of other sports leagues and teams. And you got a lot of different skills in your tool belt, but the name of the game in sports is raising and making money. So what creative things are you doing on the business side with the Long Island Nets to get your share of the dollars for the team? Well, We've probably taken a, taken a little bit of a different approach here on Long Island. We recognized early on that, you know, in a market like New York where you have, you know, multiple teams, I think it's 12 or 14 professional sports teams, you know, at the NBA, NFL level, I think there's two teams uh, in every sport. Um, and, you know, obviously you have G League teams, then you have other soccer teams, and then obviously you have a very robust Division I um, college sports scene here in New York. So we're taking a little bit of a different approach. We are really um, using our platforms as a team that the, con the, the real context of why we exist is to develop. That one word is what holds our team together and makes us apart of something bigger. Our task is to develop talent on the court, develop talent off the court in, in business, but also to develop relationships between our team and the community we serve. So we've taken an approach that in order for us to connect with corporations um, and in order to kind of create the outcomes we want on the business side, we have to be investors in the community and support you know, community-based organizations, companies that want to get messaging through to the communities to show themselves as empathetic 
Um, we have taken that approach, and it's been, uh, I would say, very successful those, thus far. I want to circle back in a minute or two to some of the community stuff. But what I was hoping to talk about for a few minutes here is actually the G League itself. Now, in recent years, the profile of the G League has increased with many prominent NBA players having the G League on their resumes. And several of your players have NBA experience and hope to make it to the NBA or maybe back to the NBA in some cases. And I think you just kind of touched on it in your previous answer, where you see the, the G League team, as, the G League as, as a development operation. But is it, so is the top role really to develop talent for the Brooklyn Nets or to try and win a G League championship or both? It, the first priority is to develop talent for the Brooklyn Nets. Um, it, it's an interesting opportunity to share. You know, the, the Nets, obviously, with our, our stars out, with Kevin Durant and Kyrie not being able to go, and then some of our players both opting out and, you know, deciding to, to stay, you know, in Brooklyn, um, it gave, you know, the Brooklyn Nets, a, a, as an example, the Brooklyn Nets a chance to look at some other players who were in the system. And, you know, the game against Milwaukee on Wednesday was a prime example of, you know, how our players um, that we've developed, that our general manager, Matt Riccardi, who's also director of um, scouting for the Brooklyn Nets, his, his primary role is to find those diamonds in the rough. And our job on the business side is to make sure that when they come here, A, we provide a fan base, we make it as close to the Brooklyn experience that they're going to have, and that they get developed. So... Uh, to be honest, you know, uh, contextually, we are here to develop talent first. And secondly, you know, we're competitive. We want to win. Um, it's it's 1B for me. Uh, some other people might say it's not that important, but we like to win. Um, and so it is, you know, develop talent first. And then obviously we want to be competitive and win if if we can put it together. I want to take a little side turn from where I was going next, because you mentioned something when you talked about how competitive the, the Brooklyn Nets made it against Milwaukee the other day. I'm just curious from a basketball perspective, my opinion has been that, that the bubble and everything that's going on down there right now on the NBA level um, is really sort of basketball in its purest competitive form. And by that, I mean this, when the playoffs begin, the home team almost always, certainly if it's a like a number one versus eight or a number two versus seven, the home team always is almost always up to nothing when after the first two games of the series on their home court. And then generally speaking, two zero is pretty tough to overcome, especially, you know, without the home court. But here I see a lot more of these series being one one after the first two games because there is no home court and because the gap between excellent teams and lower tier playoff teams is definitely minimized when there is no home court. I'm just curious, ha have you had any feelings like that in that, you know, because there's sort of neutral court uh, that these series that generally are four or five game series could easily be six game series? Well, the, the truth of the matter is there's no travel. I think everybody, you know, it, it, as you rightly say, the the playing landscape is now equal. Nobody's got to get on a plane. Nobody's got to go very far. Uh, I think people will have time to play a game, get all the treatment they need in one place, focus on that one place. And I think you're right. The the It should be an even playing field. And I think you're absolutely correct that, there will be plenty of interest as to um, how this filters out, you know, as it relates to injuries, as it re relates to the fact that, you know, there's plenty of time to watch film as you get into, you know, playoffs, which is next week, week after next. Um, people will have plenty of scouting opportunities. You get a chance to go see games live of other teams. Um, that's a little bit unusual because usually you're never in the same city. 
So I think it's going to be competitive. I think the NBA has done a remarkable job in putting this together. I think ESPN and Disney have been great partners. Um, You know, half the players that are playing in this are G League players. 53% of all players on rosters in the NBA are G League players or have had experience in the G League. So I think it's going to be a really interesting next five weeks. Because once the playoffs start, you have your your best 16 teams. And in the West, you could easily have the Lakers and Portland. And Portland is going to be a tough out. No matter how you cut it, they're going to be a tough out. So, yeah, I, I like certainly and, and, and agree with you on the fact that things are going to be leveled and, and evened out. Because now neutral sites will make it easier for everybody to be prepared a little bit better. And there's no advantage to travel or weather or things that are, that are quite frankly, out of your control. You know, everything's going to be right there. I agree with you 100% in that the uh, way that the league has gone about producing what's essentially three-and-a-half-month season in the most difficult of circumstances definitely uh, shows that the NBA – is certainly a very forward-thinking league. They have great leadership, not only at the top, but on on the the uh, the governors around the league. And uh, I'm really, really impressed as well. And I think they're really they're really showing the way. Now that said, next season I don't think they can look at 82 games under these circumstances. So hopefully we're going to have vaccines available and and treatments where we only have to really worry about this sort of an environment for a for a finite amount of time. I mean, I don't see how they could play a whole season like this. Well, that's a TBD. I think (laughs) if anybody can pull together a season, and and I think people forget next summer is the Olympics. Um, There's there's a lot that will go into this. Uh, I, I know for sure that the NBA, and just as importantly, the NBA Players Association will put together um their considerable knowledge and consideration for each other and try and do what's best for the league and do what's best for the players more importantly so back to the g league now you and your coaching staff you know obviously guys that are in the g league are hoping to be in the nba uh although some may be on the downside of their career and they just want to keep playing but they're still really good but do you ever have you ever had any situations where you've had to bring in a player and say, listen, we know you want to put up numbers because you want to get a shot in the league, but we're trying to develop chemistry here. I mean, have you had any of those situations and what what kind of guides you in how you approach that? Well, you know, luckily we've got a couple of guys that are really kind of knowledgeable on how best to use the G League. Uh, Sean Marks, who used to be the GM of the Austin Spurs. And then Matt Riccardi, who I have partnered with since we started this franchise to create the outcomes of developed talent. You know, they take a look at uh, both the needs because historically we have never put a player in our G League program that they didn't feel could one day be a, you know, Brooklyn net. You know, whether it's the 12th man, the 8th man, or, you know, somebody coming off the bench. So I I say that to say I think they take a really studious approach to how they add players, the type of players, the type of character they add in players. Um, And very rarely, matter of fact, in my four years, going on five years of being here, I don't think we've ever added a player that didn't fit, A, the culture, didn't have strong character, um, and didn't understand clearly what his role would be as part of the Long Island Nets, whether, and, and, you know, Sean has always made it clear that you're not going down to the Long Island Nets. You're going to the Long Island Nets to get minutes and develop. And if that's not okay with you, then this probably isn't the right team for you. So we don't say going down. We just say you're, you're going to the Nets to get minutes long, much needed minutes, competitive minutes. Um, and you got to fit, because we literally run the same thing that the Brooklyn Nets run. 
We run the same defensive sets, the same offensive sets, the same out-of-bounds plays. So it is a microcosm of what Brooklyn does in Brooklyn every day. So it's it's a fully integrated uh you know, game plan between the G League team and the NBA team. You, you're listening to the Mike Wise Show. This is Bruce Bernstein filling in this week for Mike. And my guest is Alton Bird, who is the vice president of business operations for the Long Island Nets of the G League. Um, one of the things that's G League news recently is that the quote-unquote select team is going to be based in Walnut Creek, California, not far from your old stomping ground in Sacramento, I don't know if Bill Duffy Associates is going to be running that team. I know his offices are in Walnut Creek. Can can this G League select team reasonably be called a G League dream team? Well, you know, the interesting thing behind the program is Rod Strickland, um, the former NBA great, um, oversees that program along with, you know, Brad Walker, who is the head of operations. It is a G League operated team. Um, as you know, Brian Shaw is going to be the head coach. Uh, I, I think at the end of the day, Walnut Creek just happens to be where I think the league felt uh, they had the best opportunity to get the facilities they need. Now, remember why these the why these young men are going to be playing on the pro path. You know, they they feel like you know going to college. Most of them are going to be one and dones, and they felt like you know the bridge between high school and getting to the NBA could be met by playing in the G League. It's going to be competitive. They get a chance to really work on their craft. Uh, There are plenty of academic and education programs that they can be a part of. So the idea is that ultimately, Bruce, this program gives young men in high school a chance to evaluate and make a choice between, do I want to go to college? Am I going to stay if I get there? Or can I play in the G League? And as you've seen over the past three or four years, there have been players who have gone to Australia or they've gone to Europe to play for a year and then come back. Now the G League is a real opportunity and, you know, quite honestly, gives them a choice of staying at home and, you know, no longer is the G League the, what, we, what people used to call the second best league in the world. Now it's really attracting the best young talent in the world. And I think what you will see is this is the first class where I think we have six players. Um, we've got a, a player from India. We've got a, a player from the Philippines. And then you've got four kids that are likely to be somewhere in the top 20 first-round picks in next year 2021 draft you know are they going to be dream teamers i i I don't know that you can call them a dream team because they got to mesh together but certainly the talent is there for them to be competitive at the g league level and ultimately get themselves prepared for what everyone hopes is a long nba career so as you mentioned Uh, The select team members are going to be offered educational opportunities and programs to help them manage their careers. And that does sound a bit like playing in college and getting paid. So do you think the NCAA is going to react to the new uh, world of the G League by allowing college teams to pay players in order to maintain the college basketball status as a top pre-NBA destination for future stars? I think the NCAA is, it has got to evaluate what this looks like and the opportunity for them to properly adjudicate what they do with college players. Um, and I, look, this argument has been 20 years in the making. Um, you know, you do see the inequities sometimes when you have coaches who are earning millions of dollars um, and players who make it so. And they are the contributing factors. Bad coaches don't get millions of dollars to run their programs. Good coaches do, and good coaches have good players. So I think the NCAA has to meet this challenge. Uh, I don't see it as a challenge. Everyone seems to think that the G League has presented an or to high school kids and to kids that want to come and play in the NBA. We see it, I, I see it as an and. I think you can go to college 
And you can, if you don't want to go to college, choose to play in the G League. So it's not, you know, you got to pick one. You can do it and. And quite honestly, if you focus on where you really want to be, and if college is the experience you want, you still have that choice. And the value of a college education, we already know, is worth tens of thousands of dollars over four years. Okay, so back to your situation uh, in the 516, as we say. Long Island is now your home, and the team's home court is the big arena in Uniondale. And I worked in the area 30 years ago when Sports Channel America was on Hofstra University's campus, and it is a very diverse area. In fact, the great Julius Irving grew up in Roosevelt, which isn't far from Uniondale, and his number hangs from the rafters at the Coliseum. So there's great hoop history in the area. Can you really size up your relationship between the Nets, the Long Island Nets, and the surrounding community? Yeah, it's been very good. We've we've worked closely with Nassau County, um, the legislators, and the Nassau County communities. We've worked closely with the town of Hempstead, which is, as you probably know, the largest township in the United States with over 800,000 residents. you know, nearly 60% of our fans come from within 30 minutes of, you know, Nassau Coliseum. Um, so we have spent a whole host of time really kind of building our relationship through, as I mentioned to you, those community platforms. You know, we've we've created education platforms. We've created, you know, health and wellness platform. We've, we've done uh, an education day for kids during our season. We've done college and career days uh, for kids who are interested in sports. Uh, We've done front office assemblies, uh, player visits, uh, donations to schools, you know, in terms of back to school. Um, We're supportive of cancer awareness. Um, So uh, to, to answer your question, that has been our mantra. How do we focus on building the connection between our team and the communities that surround not only the Coliseum, but Long Island? Long Island is a pretty big market. You know, it's it's nearly 3 million people that live on the island um, and is connected to the city. So we are very much what I would call investors in the community. I lived there for three and a half years from 1990 to 93 in between my two stints at ESPN. And you're quite right. I mean, Long Island is a very, very unique community um, and has a little bit of everything and uh, including a lot of traffic on the Long Island Expressway, but probably not as bad right at the moment. But you personally in the Nets organization have have won numerous awards for your work in, in Nassau and Suffolk County. So uh, congratulations to you on, on all of those successes. Is there anything in particular that we haven't heard yet that's maybe in the near future something you guys are working on or uh, as we get ready to maybe return to school, hopefully in another month or so? No, I think, you know, we, we are, we are working, um, especially around social justice, um, to create, again, more of a connection to make sure that, you know, people understand that social justice, criminal justice, all of the things that are important to uh, communities of color uh, that we are, you know, in the midst of and at the forefront of to evolve, you know, to evolve not only the Long Island community, but to evolve the community in general. Um, and let them know that we're supportive of the things that that are important to make the opportunities for people to get equal opportunities and to be able to succeed um, so that, you know, as I say, these, these social issues that have been, in some cases, hundreds of years in the making, you know, we can at the very least try and do something about and be supportive of, of creating change. You're uh, you're reading my mind as far as uh, where I wanted to to go next. So, the COVID nineteen pandemic, along with the racial strife, uh, have combined to rock the nation and the entire world. In prior times of crisis, we always had sports to act as a uniting force, at least on some levels. But there's no fans celebrating together at games, and people around the country 
obviously are suffering, you know, financially, emotionally, medically, so many ways. But basketball, to me, has the potential to play a role in helping to heal the wounds of our nation. How do you feel about that? I agree. I, I absolutely agree. And I think if you take basketball, it it is played throughout the world. You know, it is a unifier. Um, it is the one place when you get between the lines, and if there are no lines, you get around the basket. Everybody from every single race, creed, color, religion um, can play, and it's inexpensive to play, and it unifies people around a sport that is fun to watch, fun to participate. And frankly, it's the one sport that I've always said you can measure your improvement in every single day. So I agree that basketball has uh, the ability, the voice, the platform, the affordability, the accessibility, the aspirational nature of it to create change and unify people of all races and all creeds. And, you know, I've always been proud to be a player and a coach or GM and now a leader of a franchise to be able to implement and evolve all kinds of different opportunities for basketball to connect people together, to overcome, you know, some of uh, society's ills. Down there in the bubble, practically every NBA player and coach, be they African-American, white, international, have been kneeling during the national anthem since the NBA season resumed. do you feel this is an effective way to promote an agenda of unity and justice? I think, you know, I'm supportive of peaceful protest. I think it's one of the ways we keep it at the forefront. You, you keep injustice at the forefront. A lot of times things are, you know, often talked about. Uh, the question now is what do we do? This is one way for peaceful protest. You can certainly find other ways, you know, how do we invest in our communities to give people a chance? How do we create education opportunities and bridge the the education gap? So kneeling is one way. And then once you leave that, those four lines, you know, there are plenty of other ways that we can create. How, How do we make sure that people have enough food during these tough times across people of color? So I, I think it's one way to do that, but I, I am a believer in peaceful protest, um, and I, I, I think people should be allowed to protest in ways that, um, that they feel represented. And, you know, the late John Lewis taught us all a lot of lessons about that. Uh, obviously, the congressman from Georgia who was part of the civil rights movement and a close associate of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., um, here at Pure Hoops Media, Alton, we've done a number of shows that have explored the relationships between the races and even the tensions between the African-American and the Jewish communities. And I, I always felt that basketball had more of a family vibe than baseball or football. And those of us who've worked in the basketball world for decades, well, we've had many more personal relationships with people of different backgrounds where skin color or religion was far less important than whether you could play and whether you were a good teammate. So is our basketball culture overall a good template that society in general could learn from when it comes to meritocracy and just, um, you know, putting aside the surface differences and and caring more about people's character? Uh, There is no doubt. You know, I, I, I had the good fortune of getting a chance to play in Europe. I had a chance to play in Israel for years. Um, you know, I think the closeness between and the similarities between the Jewish faith and, and the African-American faith are very much parallel. And, you know, back in the 60s and 70s when I was young, you know, some of the people that walked with Dr. Martin Luther King and have been on the front lines of social justice change have been Jewish folks working with African-Americans. I think basketball, you know, one of the greatest teams in the world is Maccabi Tel Aviv. Um, And, you know, I've had a chance to connect with, with folks around, you know, this issue even internally within our company. And I've learned an awful lot more about the Jewish faith 
and they've learned an awful lot more about the African-American history. And I, I have no doubt that basketball is a bridge uh, and has been a bridge to continue the conversation um, between us. Um, and, and I do believe that, you know, basketball is unique. You know, it, it's the one sport where it really doesn't matter whether you are tall, short, whether you, you know, you've never played, you have played, you played high school. Like, it just brings people together. And I, I think your comment about how the the, the, the two races of people, the, the, the Jewish faith and the African-Americans, have way more in common than they do separate. And, and I think the parallels are obvious to see. You know, that's so true. And I mean, the very first really high profile collaboration, I guess, between, you know, Red Auerbach and Bill Russell, the old Borscht Belt Summer Leagues and the Catskills, and so many agents and owners have formed deep friendships with players. And Long Island has enormous numbers of both Jewish citizens and African American citizens. So, um, how how can uh, how can the Nets maybe help to bridge that? Are there certain events like interfaith type things where the league might, where the uh, team rather might have anything specific in mind, or is it just more sort of building on what you very eloquently described as the common uh, things that the two communities have in common? Well, it's interesting. I, my my first our first two years here we celebrated um, Jewish Heritage Night after Hanukkah, usually in December, uh, and they were very successful. Um, again, it's part of our community development. We celebrated Jewish Heritage Night. We celebrated Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday as an MLK celebration day. We celebrated women's empowerment. But specifically, we, we celebrated Jewish Heritage Night um, with the Chabad of, of uh, North Hempstead. Um, and so we've made the, we, we continue to make um, the integration of various communities as part of what we do in the community. Uh, and, you know, it's been very successful with the partnership we've had with the Chabad of North Hempstead and it's worked out very well. So we plan on continuing to celebrate uh, different communities of different types and religions throughout what we see as the obvious connection of what we do uh, in communities. It's really a wonderful philosophy that you have that guides you and, and your plans, because I've always felt, you know, with, with basketball, I mean, I've been a part of the basketball community for, you know, 30 years covering the NBA, et cetera, et cetera, and have unbelievable relationships with, with players, even some owners and a few agents here and there. And to me, it's like when I hear the kind of stuff that sometimes came from a person like Steven Jackson, whatever, and I've, I've known Steven Jackson and I don't believe he's an evil guy. I just feel sometimes people on social media, they kind of, they hit send before they really think about what that button is. So I believe that, you know, we're all in the same boat uh, it's a family. The basketball world is a family. And I know, for instance, you know, Michael Sweetney, who was the great Georgetown star, uh, is now an assistant coach for um, Yeshiva University, who was in the Division II NCAA tournament. So I love hearing stories about how we're kind of coming together across these lines. It, it makes me just have a lot of faith in the future that that our communities will always be uh you know, in, in, uh, you know, in harmony with one another. I know you've been very generous with your time. I just have a few more things. Hopefully we can, we can squeeze in before we say goodbye. Um, sure. We know, we know that the G league season ended prematurely due to the pandemic. And there's still so much about our collective future that we just don't know. So what's your vision for how the team, the league and sports in general should proceed from here? Well, we're learning a lot about, you know, the concept of playing in a bubble, um, which we didn't know. Look, all of us are in absolutely unknown territory. None of us have been through this before. There was no manual on the bookcase that said, hey, there's your pandemic manual. Go and figure out what we do next. 
Um, we're going to learn a lot. You know, our leadership at the league level, Sharif Abdul-Rahim, Portia Archer, you know, George Wilson, Brad Walker, those folks are what I'm going to call our experts. They will guide us as to, you know, what we can do, what we should do. And, and again, we don't, we're not controlling this pandemic. We're not controlling the virus. The virus is doing its own thing and we're at the mercy of the virus. If we do smart things, we can manage it and mitigate it. If we don't, then there's not going to be any sports. Uh, and I think you're seeing that now. Um, so we, we as a G League, are going to have to wait for, our lead, for the leadership of our league to determine when we restart. And that's going to be based on when the NBA restarts, because usually we can't. We don't usually play before. We have never played before the NBA season starts. We usually start somewhere in that 10 days to two week right after the NBA regular season starts. So if they start in December, you know, is there a vaccine? Um, do we play in a bubble like the NBA has played? Do we play in pods where, you know, we play just regionally for a month just to find out how we manage this? Um, I know that they are looking at all of the, the uh, both obstacles and they're looking at all of the opportunities. And once they kind of give us direction, um, then we will follow suit on that and hopefully we'll be playing basketball again soon. Oh, from your mouth to God's ears, Alton. That's uh, we we just we just need our society to have the great scientists and researchers to help us out from uh, from a medical perspective. And then once once they take care of that, sounds like uh, you and your colleagues will take it from there. So uh, before we say goodbye, anything else on your mind that you wanted to share uh, from the standpoint of uh, you know August two thousand and twenty as we as we hopefully start seeing the light at the end of the tunnel? It's been an interesting year. You know, I, I think if all of us could restart and, or, or for that matter, skip this year, uh, <laughs> I would be like, yeah, that's, that's an alternative. Uh, it's been an unusual year. What I have seen is more empathy. Uh, I have seen, you know, more involvement uh, with, peaceful protests. I have seen um, people reaching out to each other and, and trying to help each other more than any other time since I've been alive. And long may that continue. Um, I think basketball and sports generally is a way for people to escape just what has decimated industries and decimated companies. And I hope people continue to be empathetic and, and certainly sympathetic to the people who have lost their lives to COVID-19 and to the people who have had their lives, their lives completely altered. Um, I just hope that this country understands that this is a moment in time and that, you know, that they look back and go, we overcame this because we took care of each other. Oh, Excellent, excellent thoughts. And, you know, just from a personal standpoint, I think we've all learned so much, particularly, you know, about the the racial relations and what's gone on in the last couple months. And I really, based on a lot of the conversations that I've had with different people, including some of the younger people that I know that work with us at Pure Hoops Media on different shows, I think we're in good shape moving forward as far as harmony between, you know, the races and different ethnic groups, because I've seen what you just described. A lot of people that want to do the right thing, that want to put themselves in the shoes, if possible, of people that have perhaps had societal hurdles that we, some of us, have not had to uh, jump over. And I think as a result of all of us kind of having our sensitivity raised a little bit, I feel very good about the future, and, and I'm very optimistic. Yeah, I you know, I, I think optimism is, you know, the greatest thing you can have in times like this. Um, I'm sure that people someday hope great accomplishments in life or not, that people hope that 
that I hope people understand and they remember how much people cared about each other. Um, and I, you know, as I say, you know, this racial, the, the racial injustices, this is no new phenomenon, but I'm, I'm optimistic now that we, it's now top of mind and people want to do something about it, not talk about it anymore. Now, what can we do about it to fix it? And that's what's important. And that is a perfect note to end on. Alton, thank you so much for sharing so much of your time with me this week on the Mike Wise Show. Continued good luck with the franchise and growing the uh, the Long Island Nets in the G League overall. Thank you so much, Bruce, and thank you for having me. That was dope. Okay, folks, it's time to wrap this up. Thank you to my guest, Alton Bird, the Vice President of Business Operations for the Long Island Nets of the G League. Thanks also to our editor, Tom Phillip. Please check out all of our Pure Hoops media shows. Full Court Press with Fanta and Adams comes your way every Tuesday. This past week, Catch and Shoot 2.0 with Aaron Berlin and Otto Strong featured Om Young Masuk of ESPN with his take on the Lakers, the Clippers, and the rest of the NBA. Monica McNutt and King McClure are here each Thursday with buckets, boards, and blocks. DJ Armstrong is back with Eric Newman on the Pure Hoops podcast, which drops every Friday. And Mike Wise will be back next Monday with a brand new edition of the Mike Wise Show from Pure Hoops Media. All right, let's go. Time to stick the landing. Just a gentle reminder, we are not out of the woods with the COVID-19 pandemic. So please keep our medical professionals and essential workers in your thoughts. They're putting it all on the line for us. And we got to help them and your fellow citizens by continuing to maintain social distancing, washing your hands and wearing that mask to protect yourself and others. And please keep working for social justice with fellow members of the human race who are striving for a more inclusive society. If you like The Mike Wise Show, please subscribe. It's free. Listen and leave a five-star rating. It would mean a lot. Until we meet again, Mike Wise is back next week. Take care, folks. The Mike Wise Show used to be called The Wise Ass Show, but it remains a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.